Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I am really excited about the podcast that I put up this week. It was a talk with Jeffrey Augustine about Scientology whales, and uh, we talked about a recent scandal involving a group called GPB uh, Capital or GBP Capital, you know, uh, and a Scientologist who was kind of up to his ears in trouble right now. We'll see whether you know how that pans out. Uh, and there was we also talked about Grant Cardone. Uh, here and there, and some other things. So I would highly encourage you to check that podcast out. It was a good, beefy, long talk, and I think we covered some things that you guys are going to be very, very interested in. And I've also already recorded my 200th episode come this coming up week, uh, which I will be editing. Very awesome guest, who I'm going to totally not tell you who it is, but um, I think you guys are going to be very, very pleased with that podcast as well. And I just wanted to throw out uh, another shout-out to my Patreon supporters uh, who have signed up this last uh, week. It has been uh, awesome. Your support is amazing. Thank you very much. And everyone who supports my channel, I want to thank you guys from really from the bottom of my heart. It really does mean a lot, and it really does make a difference in my life. Uh, and finally, I just wanted to throw a little reminder out because I don't do this very often anymore, but I do have merch for sale also. Uh, and I wear it most of the time, not all the time, here on the channel, so you can check that out. The link is below. It is a Spreadshirt store, and uh, it is uh, shop.spreadshirt.com slash chrisshelton. So, without further ado, all the plugs being plugged, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Leanne Ross. From what I understand, Scientologists are willing to put up with harsh conditions and terrible treatment because of the urgency to save everyone by clearing the planet. The reason Scientologists give all their money to print books to spread the word, build giant buildings and train auditors, etc., is to clear the planet. If this is the case, I would think that the last thing that Miscavige would want to do would be to clear the planet. What would he be able to use to keep people motivated and, more importantly, keep giving him money if he stood up and said, Well done! We did it! Are there any instructions from LRH about what to do after the planet is cleared? Is there some next mission that would require people to continue giving all their money to the Church of Scientology? Do you think LRH actually really thought, believed, and or intended that the planet would ever be cleared, or was it just something to get people excited about so they would listen to him and do what he said? Great question, Leanne. Um, and, okay, so a couple things. First thing is, yes, it is expected by Scientologists. They literally do believe that, this, that the world is going to be cleared. And this is a message that Hubbard started pushing as a, you know, promotion, marketing, rile them up, get them going, motivational sort of, inspirational sort of thing. I believe, if I recall correctly, I remember him saying in an issue at one point that it was somebody else's idea, this clear the planet thing had had come along from someone else, or at least that was kind of the impression that I got from what he said, but it was a banner, it was a rallying cry that everybody could get behind, and it was uh, definitely a, a motivating force behind uniting Scientologists behind something bigger than themselves. And if you think about that for a second, you can see the power of something like that to a group. It makes, it takes it from a self-help group, a sort of selfish, narcissistic, it's all about you, and it's only about you, 
uh, for every single individual Scientologist, and it makes it into something grander and more more scaled and more amazing. And that is uh, as actually kind of a little bit of genius, <laughs> you know, when you think about it. Because who wouldn't want to get on board with having a cleared planet? Everybody in this condition where uh, they are no longer irrational, no longer uh, prey to their fears and stresses and anxieties and and personal issues. And, uh, you know, one imagines a world of, uh, of logic and reason and rationale and calm and, and tranquility and, and everybody just kind of getting along in a general sense. You know, Hubbard n- never sort of put out any kind of, uh, dare I say this, any kind of Marianne Williamson sort of vibes, right? <laughs> it's all about love. Uh, I shouldn't really rag on her because her intentions sound sound good, but uh, you know, not exactly uh, what we need right now. Anyway, getting back to Hubbard here. Um, so yeah, so that is a thing, and I don't think Hubbard ever really imagined, and I really am positive that David Miscavige has no plans or concept at all that the entire world is actually going to become cleared within this lifetime. I mean that was that was one of the when I start when I started realizing for myself I've said so many things that are you know that got me thinking when I was a Scientologist and a Sea Org member and I started and and there were there were a lot of things along the road that sort of started waking me up to the realities of what I was involved in the the money scamming and the fraud and the physical abuse and the emotional abuse all of those things and the lies and the hypocrisies, all of those kind of started waking me up. And one of those points was confronting the magnitude of what we kept talking about. You know, we kept saying, we're going to clear the planet. We're going to clear the planet. It's going to happen this lifetime. (laughs) Well, you know, Scientologists are great, obviously, at denialism and, uh, you know, in other words, not facing reality. And the sheer volume of the task at hand is, is far more overwhelming than any Scientologist is dealing with or, or confronting. I mean, these guys get off on having like five clears made in a week. Oh my God, there were 20 OTs made at FLAG this week, as though that's statistically relevant in any way when you're facing a population on this planet of, you know, billions of people. Mike Rinder has done many, many, many times has made fun of this kind of nonsense because when you run these numbers, then it means in about, you know, 30 million years, we'll have the planet planet cleared, right? So, you know, they're really, it's all just kind of this pie in the sky thing, but it's still as, as irrational and unreasonable and silly as it all is, it's still a rallying cry, and it's something that people do get excited about in Scientology. So, you know, you got to have dreams. You got to got to dream big, right? As as uh, even as Hubbard said, you know, you hitch your wagon to a star, and you know, off you go. Um, now, as far as any instructions about it, there's really only one place in all of Hubbard's work that I can think of right now, at least, where he actually talks about. What happens when this planet Earth is cleared? And this is where he, it's in a, uh, L. Ron Hubbard Executive Directive 339. Uh, it's been revised, so it's 339R. This is one of the most famous issues in all of Scientology, I believe, for this reason. He talks in there about Target 2. He says, you know, we'll all, 
we'll all make this thing happen and we're going to clear this planet and then we'll go on to target two and clear another one. And eventually, many, many, many years down the line, we will have this entire universe cleared, impervious to the traps of yesteryear, and uh, we will all move forward as, uh, you know, full OTs. So that's kind of the picture that he painted for everybody. And so Target 2 became this sort of nebulous idea of the next planet and the next one and the next one. Actually, I should say there was something else too, and that was a technical training film which talked specifically about how this would be done. Um, it was, a, the, the title of the film was YTRs, question mark, right? Why? Why TRs? Uh, TRs, of course, being training routines and the communications course, which we've talked about ad infinitum. Hubbard said that communications course would be your frontline uh, entry point into different civilizations, different planets, different cultures, even different races, different body types. Because communication is universal. There is, you know, between living beings, you have to communicate. You have to somehow get your ideas across to them, and they have to somehow get their ideas across to you if you're ever going to actually, you know, have a, uh, a living organism, a multicellular organism. Of course, it's going to have some method of communication. And as it grows and advances and becomes intelligent, as we understand intelligence, then it's going to have to have some kind of written or spoken or some kind of communication medium. The TRs address communication, Hubbard believed, at their most fundamental root core, right? Confronting another individual, getting a communication across to them, receiving a communication back from them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he said in this training film, he showed uh, a kid, like a, you know, a young man, showing up on this other planet, maybe born there because he arrived there spiritually or thetanically. <laughs> I love using that word. Um, you know, like he goes OT here on Earth, and then he goes off and zips off to some other planet where they have some primitive civilization. And what they showed in the film was a fairly primitive society. Uh, rudimentary, mechanical, um, invent, invent, you know, uh, ability but mostly kind of living out in the desert and, and dressed like desert nomad kind of thing was how the film was sort of created. And this kid comes along who is this full OT and he starts teaching people the communications course. He starts teaching them TRs. And by this, uh, they all get on board with this idea that he knows things that they don't know that they could really use. He also said in the film that you'd have to figure out how to get an e-meter uh, created because you're going to need one of those. And they had a scene of this mechanical guy sitting there with the, with the kid and the kid's got these drawings and he's showing him how he wants this e-meter made. And, uh, and of course everybody had, you know, human bodies in the film. They weren't trying to go too alien. But, um, but this was also part of the communication from Hubbard about how we were going to carry the torch out to the rest of the universe. And this was uh, a film that was shown to people who were uh, auditors in training. It wasn't shown to everybody, so not all Scientologists have seen this film. In fact, I'd say very few of them have. But it did address this question. Maybe there's other places in Scientology materials I never covered or went over where he talked about this even more, but those are the first two things that come up. So anyway, thought that might be of interest to you. I don't think I've ever talked about those things before, and uh, there you go. 
Todd Hampton. Massive fan from Australia. I look forward to your content each week, no matter what the subject is. My question is in regards to if there was ever a country that Scientology really wanted to penetrate extremely badly other than the United States. Thank you greatly for standing up for every person who has been bullied in their life. Hey Todd, thank you very much for your kind words there, and I'm really glad that my work is, uh, is something you're digging. Um, I, this brought to mind a whole set of memories that I had actually kind of forgotten about, uh, which had to do with China. And I thought you guys might want to hear about this. When I was still a public Scientologist, in fact, when I was still um, in school, I was still in high school, I heard about some kind of a project that involved international travel to China. And uh, it was an educational project. And so I went down to L.A. and I met with somebody at the... Um, what the, at the time was the equivalent of the kind of what they call applied scholastics or the effort to, to spread uh, Hubbard's study technology and, um, and learning how to learn, you know, that kind of thing. And they were trying to make inroads into China using this as a first sort of olive branch because at the time or somewhere around there, this was in the 80s, they had successfully gotten Dianetics sold in China, and they had a picture of a bunch of Chinese people, you know, flocking over this uh, book stand and, and taking over all, all these books and buying books. And they said that, of course they said, that Dianetics was taking China by storm, and the demand was huge, and now was the time to move in. And they were looking to recruit people who would be sent over there in order to do this kind of missionary kind of work. Uh, and spread study technology. They weren't gonna, we weren't going to be going over there to do uh, Dianetic stuff. That was just kind of a measure or gauge of how successful or popular L. Ron Hubbard could be there. Uh, so this was the next strategic move, I guess. At least that's how it was explained to me. Well, clearly I did not take them up on their offer. I thought it was a little too scary, you know, the idea of going to a foreign country like that, especially China as a teenager, and I believe me, I would have been, you know, total fish out of water. I would have just been in way over my head, and and that would have not been a good thing for me to do when I was 16 years old. Um, but that was an offer that was thrown out there, and China has always been a place that, that Scientologists have sort of, you know, Ugh, China, we got to get into China, you know, because there's all those people there. Uh, there have been inroads, pretty big ones, made into India, and of course, India's got so many people that you, you know you can pack a, a venue very very easily over there apparently. And they showed us work, Dianetics workshops and and things where they had you know hundreds thousands of people showing up. Uh, okay, fine, you know. So India is not closed, but China is. China is not at all interested in Dianetics or Scientology, and they put the kibosh on that very early on. And there were no more books sold in China and. Uh, China has successfully sort of repelled the invaders uh, every time Scientology has tried to get in there, to the best of my knowledge. Perhaps at this point, with China opening up a little bit more, or maybe apparently, I mean, this is not an area that I am at all expert on, but, um, but it's, it's certainly possible that there's some Dianetics or Scientology work going on in China, similar to how Russia was opened up. It was because uh, Russia opened up by a woman literally taking a copy of Dianetics, or at least this is the story, 
translating it, spreading it around to her friends, and then they started this Dianetics counseling group, and then that eventually became uh, a mission, which eventually became an org, and now, now Russia is flat-out raiding Scientology churches and trying to get them kicked out of there. And Lloyd Evans and I have talked at length about why we don't agree that that is a good idea. Uh, trying to rep suppress or hold down knowledge or ideas is, is the number one way to make sure they propagate because, you know, you can have an idea sitting there and people might look at it and go, well, that's stupid. But if you put an idea on the table and say, this is banned in China, <laughs> right? They won't let Russians read this. You're immediately going to go, really? What's that? <laughs> you know, so, so banning things is not the way to go, right? Education is the way to go. You, you, that's the only way to kill bad ideas. Anyway, um, so that I thought that might be kind of interesting for you guys to hear. But yeah, to this day, as far as I know, China is still absolutely closed off uh, unless there's something happening at a grassroots level that I don't know about. And the church would be absolutely interested in getting into China. I mean, they would be like, because look at how many people are there, you know. And there's money. There's, there's certainly no shortage of money in China. So there you go. Michael Blau. I recently realized something interesting about LRH's communications, including written and spoken in all forms. Lectures, bulletins, policy letters, and even in his fiction. The man comes across as a prude. Reports from people who had personal communications with him paint a picture of his frequent use of extreme profanity. But as a student and reader of his fiction, I saw none of that. From Battlefield Earth and even Mission Earth, the most extreme expression was diseased crap. The words damn and hell seemed to live at the boundaries of his profanity. Not even a shit to break the monotony. How do you explain that? Or am I missing something? Thanks, Mike. Okay, well, first off, I mean, lots of things here. First off, one, Hubbard uh, came up in the Pulp Fiction era of the 1920s and 30s. They were not, as far as I know, swearing up a storm in those pulp mags because they were, there were kids reading them. Uh, so I think they had some kind of general guidelines on the language that they used. I could be wrong about that, but certainly Hubbard's fiction from that time forward and many, many other authors... Uh, that I know of who were coming who came out of the golden age of science fiction were not writing Quentin Tarantino screenplays right uh, laced with tons of profanity and and uh, even tons of of you know off-color references and violence and things like that uh, that all being said Hubbard actually uh, had a pretty dirty mind and he didn't mind throwing it around right um he, for example, in the Mission Earth series, there's, I remember, sex scenes. Uh, there were, there were uh, BDSM uh, was portrayed in the Mission Earth series. I mean, there was this crazy lady who, who takes a cheese grater to Sultan Grace, right? And uh, there's a sex scene between Hel uh, Heller and uh, Countess Crack. Uh, now, it's all behind closed doors, so you're just hearing it, but... You know, like, it's not, Hubbard was not writing in a prudish style, uh, <laughs> I don't think, and putting that kind of stuff together. But the language he used, he, you know, he set it all up uh, so that uh, there were a lot of bleeps. Remember that? All through the Mission Earth series. Uh, all the bleeps being that the guy, the robot, who translated all of Sultan Greece's notes and manuscripts from his prison cell, 
he was lacing them with profanity, and people were talking profanely, but they were always bleeped out, right? So, you know, I think that's just a reflection of the times that Hubbard grew up in and uh, came up as a professional writer in. And I just don't think he thought that it was necessary for his storytelling process. Uh, you know, I don't really know <laughs> a whole lot about what Hubbard thought about his storytelling process because I'm pretty critical of his writing. But on this, on this count, you know, it's pretty understandable. Um, and no, Hubbard was not a prude. Uh, the man uh, could absolutely swear like a sailor. He actually bragged about it. And also... Uh, I remember one woman who had gone and done the L rundowns or one of the L rundowns at Flag, and she said that there was a specific rundown having to do with the second dynamic, which has to do with sex and family, and she said that this assessment got done on her uh, that apparently was an LRH assessment. I, I, I don't know because we don't really have the full L materials for all those rundowns leaked out of the church. We just have what's written down from people's memories. But um, she said that Hubbard knew terms uh, that she had never heard of. <laughs> I mean, all the ones she did know and new ones that she'd never heard of before were being checked out as part of the auditing process. So I don't think Hubbard was exactly ignorant or, and I don't think your question implies that he was, but I'm just saying I don't think he was uh, a prude. I don't think that was uh, a word that I would use to describe L. Ron Hubbard. Steve Faring. One of the things that made me think that Scientology wasn't working around the world was the failure of their numerous Way to Happiness campaigns to affect real change anywhere they were done. Do you think they really did hand out those Way to Happiness booklets to very many people? I remember they were going to hand them out in the Middle East somewhere because it was always a troubled area. Well, I didn't see anything change there, and no one ever spoke of that campaign again. Did they really hand them out only to find that it didn't change anything? Okay, well, first off, no. Handing out the Way to Happiness book has never been shown to uh, be a statistically relevant um, influencer in any area as to reducing crime, reducing violence. The church always makes these claims, but when you actually go fact check the graphs that they put together where they show rising or lowering crime rates and the distribution of the Way to Happiness booklets in those areas, you always find major, major other factors influencing those, those crime rate statistics. But the church uh, kind of doesn't talk about those, and it just sort of uh, throws a correlations not equal to causation fallacy at you that, look, we distributed these books here, and the crime rate went down, you know, a month later, and clearly it's because of the books, when in fact you go back and find out that the police force was, you know, 2x'd in size, and there's been a whole, uh, you know, campaign being run for years, and, you know, blah, 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 and education in the prisons and various other programs that uh, themselves are, you know, all in and of themselves don't do a whole lot, but collectively you can change the course of a society's crime rates or, or drug rates or drug trafficking, stuff like that, by actually enforcing laws and doing people doing their jobs rather than being a bunch of corrupt bureaucrats and, and police officials who are taking bribes and all that kind of stuff. Surprise! Uh, okay, now as far as the Middle East goes, I have a story on this that I'm going to tell you guys, but I don't know uh, if it's true or not. It was just a story that was spread around in the Sea Org when I was there, and it had directly to do with distribution of way to happiness in the Middle East. And it was some guys who had gotten together, and they had about, 
you know, boxes in the back of a van of the Way to Happiness books, and they were driving down. I, I, this was somewhere in the Middle East. I can't remember where, but it was in a it was in a, a hot zone. And they got, the story went that these guys got stopped by men with machine guns. Um, I don't know if it was Palestinians. I don't know if it was uh, Afghanis. I don't know, again, where it was. But they got stopped by people with machine guns who took them captive, uh, took their truck, took all the boxes, put them in a basement, and uh, were trying to figure out what to do with them. They were going to kill them. I mean, they were Americans or they were Westerners. And they had all these boxes of Way to Happiness books. And the, um, they were questioning them as to, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Because they were white people, right? And they were clearly Westerners, and they weren't wanted in the region. And the um, answer was, well, we're, we're passing out these, these books. And they were like, no, that's, that's just total horseshit. You're not here passing out these books. We think you're spies. Prove us wrong. And they, you know, said, well, no, really? They, they talked, you know, very convincingly. Uh, and they said, read the book. Look at the book. It's the Way to Happiness book. It's from L. Ron Hubbard. We're here to try to help. We want people to, you know, get along and, and follow this nice moral code. And is there anything wrong in the book that we're, that we're putting here? I mean, do you see, you know, look at it. And they, and they kind of scratched their heads, the, the, uh, the Middle Easterners, and they kind of went and looked at the book and, we're like, huh, well, there isn't really anything wrong with this, and we don't really have any proof that you guys are spies. You say you're distributing these books. Well, all right. And eventually, after a couple days, I mean, they actually did hold these guys captive. Again, this is all just rumor. I don't know if this actually happened. But they held them uh, hostage for another day or two, and then decided, then came downstairs, a leader or somebody came down and said, with the book in his hand, all right, we're going to let you go, uh, you know. Good luck. And they put them back in their van with their boxes. And of course, you know, the, the, the punchline is that they kept one of the boxes of books for themselves. So, you know, maybe that happened, maybe it didn't, but that was a story that was told. Now, okay, uh, so are there people on the ground there distributing these books? Yes, I actually don't have any doubt that there are Scientologists in Israel, in Pakistan, in wherever they're going to get off to, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, wherever they can get to, passing out these books. And, you know, honestly, I wouldn't really have much of a problem with them passing out these books as far as the moral code goes. Um, but, you know, I'm not really keen on them passing out books that have Elrond Hubbard's name on them. But, the Middle East is the last place I'm concerned about as far as Scientology propagating itself because they have so many cultural and religious barriers to, cut, to get over in those regions. And uh, anyway, so, you know, we'll see what happens with all that. But clearly, the efforts that they've made so far have fizzled uh, because if there had been any kind of change that they could point to any kind of change on crime rates, drug rates, world peace, anything like that, believe me, the Church of Scientology would, would make it look like they were the saviors and they were the ones bringing peace to the Middle East. So uh, the fact that they haven't really, at least as, to my knowledge, done anything like that indicates to me that they just kind of want to forget about that whole thing and we're not going to talk about that anymore. <laughs> there you go. Steve. I am involved with the Christian church here and interested in pastoral issues. Last night, I watched one of your videos and you said Scientology creates narcissists. 
There are a few books written about narcissists in the Christian church. One recent one is Let Us Pray. It reckons 39% of the pastors in the United Methodist Church in Canada have narcissistic personality disorder. The Christian church seems to be a haven for people with such a disorder. Do you think it applies to all religions or just those with positions of power and control? Also, when does a Christian church become cultic? What would the warning signs be? In the USA, you have many denominations with what seems little accountability, so it's easy for a charismatic pastor with NDP to turn a church into a cult. Your thoughts? Uh, here's my thing about this, is I don't think that it depends on the type of group or the purpose of the group to determine whether a narcissistic person could take charge of such a group or whether it is more or less common in religious groups versus non-religious groups. Because the thing about cultic activity that, that you know, we have talked about at length here is that it's not dependent on the reason why the group is together in the first place. Any group is susceptible to cultic influence or activity, and any group is susceptible to being taken over or founded or run by a charismatic leader who's also suffering, as you mentioned, from narcissistic personality disorder or worse. So it's, you know, you can do various surveys, I suppose, and maybe social scientists should do said surveys to find out is it more or less common in religious groups versus, say, business consulting groups versus, say, karate dojos, where apparently it's very common to other kinds of situations or groups, right? I mean, you know, we talk about businesses. You could even have a subunit that is run by some narcissist guy or some sociopath, and just that little area is crazy cultish, uh, meaning that there is this abusive relationship that exists between the leader and the followers or subordinates, uh, and they have this sort of sick little codependent relationship going on. Uh, there's, there's hundreds of reasons how and why all of this occurs. The, the formation of it is not dependent on a belief system that these people are united around. It can happen in a Boy Scout troop. It can happen in a Girl Scout troop. I mean, it's not, it's not gender specific. It's not race specific. It's not cultural specific. Any human being is susceptible to this stuff. So, uh, so that's kind of how I want to answer that question. I know it's a very broad shoot. Um, you know, it, it can be commented on for sure that religious groups might act as a magnet for such personalities, but I don't know that that's any truer than, um, you know, executive groups or, again, karate dojos being magnets for these kind of activities. I think any activity where somebody who wants to have, you know, exert their will over others, they, they could do so in any, any number of ways. So anyway, I don't know. That's, uh, those are some thoughts that I had on that. And feel free to ask me to clarify or if there's anything more specific about that you'd like to know. it is time for some lightning round flash answers. Constance Vigilance. Hi Chris, some of the events that Mike Rinder likes to make fun of on his website actually look like fun. Costume parties, magic shows, etc. Except for the regging part, are the events any fun? 
Well, they can be, um, but generally, I mean, I was a staff member for most of these events, or I was a Sea Org member, so I was working at these events. So they were never fun for me. I never enjoyed myself at these events. What I did enjoy as a Scientologist was sitting and hearing all the good news and all the, uh, the, the statistics and all that kind of stuff. The magic shows and costuming and that kind of stuff, that never really appealed to me. And it was mainly just to get, you know, something for the kids to do or something, so to give the adults an excuse to be there so that the regs could have at them. Uh, that's kind of how those things really went down. Joanna T. I'm wondering how important it is for someone on Scientology's bridge to total freedom to be in a relationship in the church's eyes. Is there more pressure the higher they go to have a relationship, or do they prefer slash encourage Scientologists to concentrate on the bridge and forego relationships? They don't really care one way or the other. Nobody really cares about your relationship status unless, of course, you're having an LGBT relationship or in, uh, in some other way that relationship is impairing your ability to pay for the bridge or do the bridge. If that's happening, then the church steps in and wants to have words with you about it. They definitely frown on any kind of, um, you know, sleeping around kind of behavior. If, you're, if your past is littered with one-night stands and you're fairly irresponsible in the area of sex as they see it, right? In other words, you're, you know, just kind of going around doing your own thing and, um, and that's your lifestyle and you're, you're into that. Uh, they might you know, have words with you about, you know, maybe sitting down and starting a family, but it really depends on the individual ethics people that you're talking to and their own biases about that. There are plenty of ethics officers who really don't care at all. They've got plenty of other things to worry about, and they don't care who you sleep with. <laughs> so, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of how that goes. Paul Tysinger. I was wondering if you know what happened to Stacey Brooks when the LMT was disbanded in the early 2000s. Yeah, all I know is I think she went back to England or somewhere over uh, in that area in the UK, and she's pretty much been dormant and not talking to a whole lot of people since then, and that's all I really know about it. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming around and watching me ramble on here, answering your questions. Thank you very much for your questions, by the way. Please keep leaving them in the comments section here on YouTube or send them to me by email. And I will add them to my very extensive queue of questions waiting to be answered. I know some of you guys have been uh, waiting quite a while. You know, some questions I don't always have the answers to. And so I don't ever have an answer for them. <laughs> that happens too. But anyway, thank you very much, guys. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.